All right, let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back to our study of 1 Samuel. We are in chapter 15, and of course we stopped mid-narrative last week. There was just no helping that. We are in the middle of uh, the Lord's rejection of Saul. Certainly he has earned it. We don't know everything about the unfaithfulness of Saul's kingship, but we do have these major episodes showing just how cynically Saul views his relationship to the Lord, um, not only personally, but but especially as uh, king of the Lord's people. We've seen Saul uh, do the sacrifices himself, just completely ignoring the person of God, the prophet of God, the order of God. He just sees it as something he has to do and get out of the way in order to proceed into military victory. We've we've seen him similarly stop the hand of a priest on the eve of battle and and rush in himself. We've seen him um, congratulate himself for military victories. Um, We've seen him act in in otherwise uh, disrespectful ways toward God in self-congratulatory ways. So... (laughs) Evermore it is the case where, you know, whereas John the Baptist says, I must decrease, he must increase, Saul has clearly got that flipped. He says, I must increase, the Lord must decrease. And that's really what we've seen heretofore, um, unfortunately, with King Saul. In the backdrop, we see our Lord Jesus as true king of God's people. In the backdrop, we see our Lord Jesus in humility, crowned with thorns, um, whereas it, in you know, in contrast to the great pomp and arrogance of Saul, whereas Saul fails in so many ways, our Lord succeeds in so many ways. Um, so that has certainly been part of our meditation. Now, if you recall, <clears throat> I'll do the best I can to bring us up to speed in where we left off in chapter 15. If you recall, the Lord has sent uh, Saul and thus Israel on this mission to uh, in judgment against the Amalekites. The Amalekites' original sin, so to speak, as a people was in their mistreatment of Moses and the people on their way to the Promised Land. And it's gotten no better for the Amalekites as time has progressed. And really, they have filled up the fullness of their sins and God sits in judgment against them and He is going to execute judgment against them as a people. This is completely God's prerogative as as we've discussed previously. Um, God can do this and does do this. And I think most pertinent to us as Christians, somewhat distressing, of course, um, but, but we as Christians in this nation realize that we are ripe for the judgment of God. Um, and and every, with every passing day, with ever, every passing crisis, we show ourselves less and less worthy of, of his mercy and of his graces. We show ourselves more and more to be people after the heart of Saul rather than people after the heart of God. An interesting fact is the word uh, crisis. Actually, in the Greek, crisis uh, comes from, uh, it means judgment. So every crisis 
is a judgment and portends unto a, a greater judgment. You can think of the many, many calls our culture, our society here in the United States has had already, how many crises we've had um, that we might as a people repent, return to the Lord, come to our senses, not continue to walk in this path of destruction. And yet, repeatedly and repeatedly we have. And so at a certain point, I mean, while that's distressing for us because we live here, um, at a certain point we just simply realize all the more clearly that, hey, you're, you're on the side of this society, this American culture, or you're on the side of Christ. There's no, no middle ground. And what little middle ground we may have found in the past is probably illusory to begin with, but is certainly um, gone. What we have now is to side with the Lord over and against a wicked people, to call them to repentance, but to speak in no uncertain terms that God's judgment is going to befall them. And if it befalls on us and, and we, we likewise perish, well, so be it. Though, though, we live, uh, though we die, yet shall we live. And Whoever lives and believes in Christ shall never die. And so this is our hope and we realize our calling in this time and place is to speak the word of the Lord and be prophetic, be bold and brave with that word, um, not be cowardly, not see ourselves as victims, see ourselves as emissaries and ambassadors of the Lord. Um, and if we are called to suffer, then we are called to nothing less than the honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was the emissary, the ambassador of the Lord. And if they so crucified him, um, we can expect no different. Uh, he, after all, is the master and we are his servants. And in fact, what a complete honor it is uh, to suffer with the Lord and, and in whatever ways we may be called to or have been called to, uh, to be conformed into the image of God's own Son and bear our crosses in the image and form of, of the cross-bearer, the Savior of the world. So uh, increasingly, we Christians need to flip a mental page in our minds and realize that uh, we are on the side of the Lord over and against a wicked people and a wicked generation. Well, uh, then God's judgment um, befalls wicked nations. It befalls the Amalekites. Now, he gives specific instruction that, that this judgment is going to take place through the hands of Saul and the Israelites there to sweep in and devote everything to instruction, uh, to destruction, excuse me. What we find then is, of course, unfaithfulness and this kind of cynical pragmatism on the part of uh, Saul and the people. And, and again, I've articulated this in, in previous sessions, perhaps better than I'm going to right now, but this cynical pragmatism says, well, I'm not going to be obedient to the Lord to the fullest extent. I'm going to be, I'm going to make a compromise. I'm going to be obedient to the Lord halfway, and the other half, I'm going to do what seems best in my eyes, what seems wisest. Uh, or most strategic, or most pleasing in my own eyes. So I'm going to meld these things together. I'm going to serve God and myself. Or in this specific instance, I'm going to serve God and mammon, material wealth. That's precisely what we see. So they're supposed to sweep down, devote everything of the Amalekites to destruction. Chapter 15, verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agog. That's the... That's the uh, um, 
king of the Amalekites, I think. Yeah, it is. And uh, they spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves. So they spared all the best, kept them for themselves. Um, the lambs, too, are in there. And all that was good they kept for themselves and would not utterly destroy them. So here's the serving of mammon. And then all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. There's the serving of God. Ha. So serving God and mammon, how does it actually pan out? Serving themselves and God, how does it actually pan out? They end up serving mammon. They end up serving uh, themselves. And so that's what we see here. And, and you know, again, this is, this is like a prophetic warning for us in our time and our place. Um, there's no, there's just, if, if ever there was room for compromise, increasingly there is not. Um, and indeed, spiritually speaking, there's never any compromise. As Jesus says, you either will serve God or mammon. Um, you will either serve yourself, um, as Adam and Eve did in the original sin, or you'll serve God. So, this is, a, this is a big problem. Well, Samuel comes to, and maybe let's just pick up here because by the time I describe it, I may as well have read it. Chapter 15, verse 10. Samuel, of course, hears about this from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. And again, look at that unique construction. I'm not going to point this out every time we see it in the text, but look at the unique construction. It's not that Samuel heard from the Lord. It's not that, it's not that the, the Lord spoke his word to Samuel. The construction there is, is actually the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Uh, it's, it's very fascinating because there's no reason why you couldn't hear see um, the same word as John picks up in, in his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Here, the word of God, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. It's just quite plausible. And this is what he said. So again, there's no distinction between the person of Jesus and, and the Word of God. Okay, what's the content? I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. All right, so this is the same regret we see um, the Lord speak over the world right before the deluge when he regrets that he has made humankind because the human, humankind has so corrupted itself um, that, it, that it simply cannot exist anymore. And uh, here, same with, same with Saul's kingship. It's become so corrupt that it cannot exist anymore. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and cried to the Lord all night. Obviously, Saul, Samuel is angry with Saul, not with the Lord. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Ah, I meant to make a note of that in my text. Yeah, here's the, here's the height and epitome of the depths and depravity of Saul. He has made, now made a monument to himself, congratulating himself after this terrible, pitiable unfaithfulness. This, by the way, ties us back into one of the major theological themes, if not the major theological theme in 1 Samuel, and that is the theme of the reversal. Again, we know that, that Samuel himself is a, you know, you have the barren mother who then in Samuel becomes fruitful. You have the, um, 
You have Samuel, who is, who is no one, becomes someone. You even, to a degree, have Saul, who is no one, becomes someone. And then he thinks himself so much so on, someone that God ends up having to make him no one again. So you have this constant, um, the, the lowly are exalted, and those who exalt themselves are humbled, this up and down uh, reversal theology throughout. And so here, too, um, you see that Saul is now so full of himself that the Lord has no choice but to cast him down. He makes a monument for himself. Uh, it says in verse 12, And he turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, uh, Yeah. I mean, here again, it's just very... Either Saul, and this is going to be a tension we have throughout this text, either, either Saul is, is himself being completely deceptive, there, there's one option, completely deceptive to Samuel, or here's the other option, and, and they're both equally terrifying. The other option is that he's so self-deceived, he thinks he's being genuine, he thinks he's being pious and faithful. Those are pretty much your two options. He knows what he's doing and is being intentionally deceitful. He is so self-deceived he doesn't even know what he's doing. Again, both equally horrifying and, and both his own most grievous fault, um, as, as all of our sins are our own most grievous faults. And unlike Saul who does not repent and or has faux repentance, you know, let, let you and I, let us uh, kneel before the Lord and, and make the good confession of our sins and plead guilty of all things and receive from him perfect and full forgiveness that he is one for us on the cross. Saul rejects, uh, rejects Samuel um, really before he even gets to a point of, of genuine repentance. So uh, Samuel comes to Saul. Saul says to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I mean, what a complete fib. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? You know, if, you, if you, in fact, perform the commandment of the Lord, then these animals should have been devoted to destruction. In other words, Samuel in no uncertain terms calls Saul out here. Saul then says, verse 15, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Well, we see two things. First of all, maybe more. First of all, uh, there's, it's as if Saul doesn't even know what the command of the Lord was. Command of the Lord was devoted all to destruction. He says, we fulfilled that. Oh, here they are. Uh, he, he completely ignores the command of the Lord. He also foists the blame over on the people. It's the people who spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. And then he's got this thing, whether he's deceiving or self-deceived, who knows? But the whole point is to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Well, the Lord didn't command sacrifice. And this is a point Samuel himself brings up. Is the Lord didn't command sacrifice. He commanded you to devote it to destruction. So your whole false piety here is based on your own arrogance, your own uh, disobedience to God's command, so that then you can pay lip service to him in this way that you've invented. You know, 
this is in vain do they worship me, teaching as, as doctrine the commandments of men. Um, Saul has no command of the Lord to do this. He's invented it himself, and he's going to be faithful to his own invention rather than the Lord's word. So he says, you know, they've kept the best to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Interesting, of course, that he says, your God, who knows if this is respect or if this is a deceit or what's going on. It's very hard to tell with Saul in, in, these, uh, in these verses. He continues, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Saul said to him, speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes. Now, <laughs> this is delicious. He's just made a monument to himself. What is Samuel doing here? This is biting, cutting sarcasm. You know, though you are obviously little in your own eyes, so little in your own eyes that you made a monument unto yourself. Uh, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And there's the truth. I mean, this is a really nice turn of phrase, like, he, he calls him away from his fantasy and to the reality, you are indeed the head of the tribes of Israel. In other words, are you not respond? You just said the people of Israel did this. Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. In other words, you don't serve at your pleasure. You serve at his pleasure. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. So Samuel restates the commandment that the Lord had given. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Again, is he is, does he know what he's doing and is intentionally deceiving? It's hard to think otherwise. Although I have indeed seen this in people, and it's, it's equally, if maybe not even a touch more terrifying when you're face to face with it, someone so self-deceived, they think they're telling you the truth, even though it's a blatant lie. They think they're making sense, even though they are completely deceived and not making any sense whatsoever. So Samuel relays out the command of the Lord. It's obvious that Saul has not fulfilled it. Saul's response to Samuel is, I have fulfilled it. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So again, Saul just restates his case, as confused, as wrong-headed, as sinful as it, as it is. Um, Self-deceived or deceiving. But Samuel's not going to have any of it. Verse 22, and Samuel said, Has the Lord, or excuse me, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Um, let's pause there. This actually is an extremely rich text. 
extremely rich. And this, this proclamation of Samuel in, uh, with this very first king of Israel will echo throughout the entirety of the various kingships of Israel. Even after the divided kingdom and in the days of the, the major and minor prophets, this fundamental teaching will echo over and over and over again. What goes on in many and various forms throughout the generations of Israel is precisely this. We've got the sacrifices of God. God is pleased with sacrifices. In fact, some of these sacrifices, God says uh, that our sins are forgiven through them. Therefore, we can act and do however we please as long as we offer God the sacrifices. That's all he wants. Okay. So what's going on here? With the false piety of, hey, God loves sacrifices, we love sacrifices, we're poor sinners, we're doing the sacrifices. Under the facade of this false piety really is a, is, is a wickedness that says, I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to use the very things of God against him so that I can continue to do whatever I want. Okay. In, in, again, in Lutheran formal theology, we call this ex opera operato. It's, it's the working of the work itself. It's a, it's a, you change the, the majesties and the gifts of God's grace and mercy toward repentant sinners. You change these things into a system by which you basically just pay off God in order to, uh, to, to live and do as you see fit. This very much has its parallel in the New Testament age. Uh, and if you want to see an apostolic treatment of this very thing, um, you cannot do better in my estimation than 1 Corinthians 10. What you see going on there is that the Corinthians are doing this very thing with baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're saying, hey, <laughs> I can live and do as I please because I'm baptized. I can live and do as I please because I'll go to communion on Sunday and receive the, receive the Lord's forgiveness. Hey, the Lord loves to forgive. I love to sin. This is a perfect deal. Of course, were, were these things instituted by God? Was baptism and the Lord's Supper instituted by God? Was this gracious forgiveness of sins giving so that we could go on sinning that this grace may abound? By no means, Paul says in Romans 6. So he tells this, the tale, of course, of the Old Testament and how the, those people who followed Moses through the Red Sea, they too had a baptism. And those people who ate of the manna in the wilderness and drank of the, of the rock, um, they too had a spiritual food and a spiritual drink. But despite having a baptism, despite having a spiritual food and drink, they were disobedient. They were idolatrous, sexually immoral. And thus God's judgment fell upon them. And Paul says, these things are written for you, O Corinthians, O you, you O New Testament Christians, um, that you do not do likewise, namely that you do not presume upon baptism and presume upon the, the body and blood of Christ uh, such that you simply um, eat and drink and rise up to play that you simply sin and live as ever, however you see fit and then claim your baptism. 
Unfortunately, in the 20th century, this is what much of our, our you know, Lutheran, in quotations, theology has become. I mean, you don't have to listen very long or very hard to, to essentially hear theology in, in contemporary Lutheran sermons that gives itself over to this. We've done a terrible job warning people the way that um, St. Paul warns people in, in 1 Corinthians 10. And then all of this, of course, goes right back to this dynamic. Look um, what Samuel is saying. And again, this is a foundation for, this, for the, this Old Testament prophetic theme and this New Testament theme that is even carried on by the apostles. Here it is in one of its earliest forms with Samuel. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Let's put this in our own terms. Better not to sin than to sin and claim, oh, I'm baptized. To obey is better than sacrifice. Better to not sin than say, well, I'm going to go ahead and sin and then I'll just go to communion and get God's forgiveness. Better to obey, it is better to obey than to sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. The fat of the rams was the very best part of the sacrifice. You see here a parallel. Um, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen, um, and of course listen and do as the, is the content here. To listen than the fat of rams. All right, so this becomes thematic. Thematic. And you can hear this language echoed even throughout the Psalms now that I think about it, of course. All right, so Samuel calls out in this immediate context Saul's hypocrisy. It would have been better for you to obey than this silly sacrifice that you yourself have constructed. It would have been better for you to listen than to offer the best rams and the fat of the rams to the Lord. And he continues, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. In other words, clearly Saul has rebelled against the Lord and led his people in rebellion against the Lord. And rebellion against the Lord is as the sin of divination. What is divination? R really having another God, going, trying to do an end around on God, trying to get informa divine information um, other than just simply going to the divine one. That's, that's divination. And so it's idolatry. And in, and in doing this rebellion and constructing this false worship, um, Samuel in no uncertain t terms is telling the king, um, you're a rebel and you're guilty of idolatry. You're guilty of divination. Now, hindsight 2020, this all looks very different to us. This looks like this untouchable prophet boldly proclaiming the word of God to a king who's, you know, can't do anything but accept it. As we're going to see in, in just, a, just a few paragraphs, I mean, just, just a few lines of scripture, that hindsight is not 2020. Samuel, in, a, in an earthly way of speaking, in, in a way that you know, we would see it as if, if we were his contemporaries, he is risking his life in saying this. He is risking his life. Later on, we'll see, he, he fears that Saul's just going to whack him. Um, the, the king could do whatever he wants. This prophet has, has no 
earthly protection, if you will. So he is completely vulnerable and, and he is standing here speaking this word to the king, no doubt knowing full well in his mind that the king might just take him out. So again, let's not have this anachronistic distortion looking back on it and thinking, oh, he's, he's this biblical figure. Nothing could have gone wrong. That's certainly not how Samuel would have seen it. All right, so for, he says, For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption. Yeah. The psalmist prays, Save me, O Lord, from presumptuous sins. Presumption, to presume upon the Lord, is as iniquity and idolatry. Okay. So how is he presuming upon the Lord? The Lord hath said, Do A, Saul has said, I'm going to do kind of A, and I know the Lord's going to be pleased with me. I've done his will. I've done kind of A, and in fact, I'm adding B. The Lord's going to love this. That's presumption. You know, we presume upon the Lord in two ways. Negatively, when we only partly fulfill his word and assume that then he's going to be pleased with that, like rather than confess it, we presume that we have in fact fulfilled it. That's one kind of presumption, a negative presumption. A positive presumption is when we add to the commandment of the Lord and then assume he's going to be extra pleased with that or, and pat ourselves on the back. That's another manifestation of the sin of presumption. And again, what is Saul doing in context? He is flatly accusing the king of rebellion and presumption of divination and idolatry. And then he continues, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also rejected you from being king. And again, I, you know, note the instruction. It's, it's certainly the case that you, know, you, you can view the commandment here, but you have rejected the word of the Lord. Remember back in chapter 15, verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. So, to take nothing away from the fact that Saul has rejected the content of the commandment of the Lord, to take nothing away from that, that's true. He has also, in a very real sense, rejected Jesus, rejected the true king of the people, and led the people astray. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Yeah. Now, again, there's an ambiguity here in the character of Saul, and, and there's a couple different ways to look at him and look at this. But I think the most straightforward way is he does, he, he's willing to take some, some blame, at least that's how it appears. I have sinned, he says. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. But then, rather like Adam blaming the woman, uh, he blames the people. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Ah, yeah. So you actually, you actually do have a pretty good parallel there between from Adam to Eve to Saul to the people and what's going on here. Um, very, very good reason to be highly skeptical of this confession. And, and I think here Saul fits that, that type of Cain, that type of Esau, 
who they, they weep and, and mourn and, and lament that they got caught, <laughs> that there's going to be a punishment, that there's going to be a consequence. And Saul here uh, also. All right, he continues in verse 25, and I think you'll see all the more what I mean. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Now, what becomes clear a few verses later is this return with me is really what Saul's after. Because if the prophet will return with him, he saves political face. He looks like he's got the grace and blessing of God, like Samuel didn't actually rebuke him. So again, what is Saul really after? Well, as we're going to see in the next few verses, it appears that, that Saul is really after political appearances. He wants to make sure the people still love him and respect him. So this all rings quite hollow because he cares very little for God, loving God, respecting God, and, and having God love and respect him. Rather, he cares more about the people, more about his appearance. But again, what would you expect from somebody who does unfaithfully and builds a monument to himself? All right. Verse 26, And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So here once more is a rebuke, and at least here, uh, Samuel seems to see quite clearly what Saul is up to. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. Now, how does he seize the skirt? I don't, who knows, you know, was he heading upstairs? Was Saul at it, uh, on his knees, you know, begging this? I, you know, who knows? But this is, the, this is the information we're given. Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, I mean, this almost gives you chills. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So what a rebuke and indictment and just it almost gives you chills because you can picture this, you know, as, as he reaches out in, in desperation, seeing his own egotistical world kind of collapsing in on him and, and reaches out rather violently, no doubt, for the, for the robe and the robe tears and Samuel spins around and, and rebukes him with these words. As you tore the robe, so the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now those rings, those, those words, excuse me, those words must ring in the ears of an egotist. And indeed, uh, they no doubt did and do. All right, verse 29, and he continues, and also... The glory of Israel. Oh, this is such a beautiful title for God. Especially in light of John's Gospel where there's so much discussion between the Father and the Son about, about glory. and Glorify your Son. Glorify yourself in me and I in you. And this kind of language that um, it all pretends to the cross. So even here where you, if you hear this with Johannine ears, the glory of Israel. You know, you, can, you don't think so much about shiny lights as you do... Um, about the cross of Jesus, the love of God for man, the, the humility and self-sacrifice wherein God uh, loves man even unto death. Well, it's a beautiful title. 
Samuel continues, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Okay. In other words, God's ways are not as our ways. He simply um, he, he stated this, and that's the way it's going to be. I think that that's really the sentiment here. The Lord has spoken. All right, so now, now um, Saul responds to Samuel. Then he, Saul, said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me. So again, you see him saying, I sinned, but does he really want atonement? Does he really want God's forgiveness? Or does he just want Samuel's forgiveness so that Samuel will help him save face? It seems to be that that's the case. Samuel has spoken in no uncertain terms that, like, look, you've lost the kingdom. And I think that that's why Samuel does what he does next. Um, well, I, sorry, I left off halfway through uh, verse 30. So just verse 30, Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord, your God. Again, it just rings very hollow and there's that odd, your God again. So Samuel turned back after Saul and Saul bowed before the Lord. Now, what's going on here uh, is as Samuel has already shown he's not going to be manipulated by Saul. He's already shown what Saul is about. So he rebukes and restates once more that this is the end of your kingship. Saul begs for him to, to go down with him once more so there can be this political peace and harmony. And Samuel acquiesces to that. I mean, having, having spoken the word of the Lord, having spoken his peace to Saul, it's like, fine, let there, let there be political peace. And who cares, Saul, if you look good in people's eyes for the time being, this is already as good as done. You are replaced. And Saul has, or Samuel has no problem then sort of making for political peace uh, at this point, knowing that um, you know, Saul's going to be overthrown in short time, in very short time. Okay, uh, so I think that that's probably the best explanation for why Samuel goes ahead and turns back after Saul and, um, and Saul bows before the Lord. I, I, of course, I think you, I mean, it's possible to read this a little more happily. Um, yeah, but I think you're up. I think you got an uphill battle there uh, to demonstrate that, um, especially just in, especially in light of um, what transpires. Really, you know, the next time we see uh, we see Saul, there's no peace between him and the Lord. <clears throat> so, um, you know, we we leave off with Saul here bowing before the Lord. But again, the next time we see Saul, there's no peace between him and the Lord. So I think that that's it's a pretty good indicator that um, we've read this, this section the right way. This isn't a genuine repentance and forgiveness and restoration going on despite the temporal consequence of losing the kingship. No. Uh, Saul's shown himself um, rather rotten through and through. Okay. <laughs> wow, this is... Um, this is something else. And again, that theme of, of reversal, just at, at full volume here. So you turn the page over to verse 32 of chapter 15, and this is what you get. One of the most incredible uh, things in, heretofore in the scriptures, I think, at least incredible images. 
Then Samuel said, now this is the man of God, this is the priest of God, this is the little child who grew up in the temple of God. Here am I, here am I. Um, it's this Samuel. Samuel said, bring here to me Agog, the king of the Amalekites. And Agog came to him cheerfully. Now, Agog, of course, is supposed to be slain already. He came to him cheerfully. Alternate translation is he came to him terrified, but you can see which one the ESV is preferred here, and I think it's right. Um, Agog said, surely the bitterness of death is past. Again, you could read this in a, in a number of ways, but I think, I think really what he's kind of saying is, uh, look, I've, I've been spared. I'm not going to die. And there's almost, a, there's almost a little bit of a gloat in this, perhaps. Well, however one reads it, it doesn't much matter. Verse 33, And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agog to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. All right, so, you know, what's, what's very interesting here is, is Samuel is not in any way acting out of character of the Lord. He's not in any way acting out of character of Jesus himself. Jesus is our king, and the enemies of his people, the enemies of him, finally meet their demise. When the, the day of judgment comes, that's it. And there's absolutely nothing whatsoever wrong with, what's, with, with what Samuel here does, um, with what the Lord does on the last day in accordance with Revelation. Um, it's violent, it's definitive, it's the victory over good and evil, and I guess if you don't have a stomach for it, you better question which side you're on. That's, that's really uh, for us modern people who have, who have in some respects grown so squeamish, um, so judgmental of the Lord, ha, while not being so squeamish when it comes to our own taking of life and not being judgmental when we uh, abort how many million in this country. That's one of the things I, I reflect on, you know. L listen to, to the description of, of Agog. As your sword has made women childless. I mean, that obviously just the reference there, as far as we know, at least the primary reference, because the sword's involved, is military. But how apropos of those who make women childless through abortion. I mean, and look what Samuel says. As your sword made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. So live by the sword, die by the sword. Make, other, uh, make women childless. Your mother, your woman, will not have a child. There's complete justice here, complete symmetry. All right, so... Incredible imagery, and incredible imagery in the, uh, in the graphic nature. I don't mean to meditate on it too much, but on the graphic nature there at the end of uh, verse 33. It's not just uh, slayed him, killed him, did the Lord's will, whatever you want to say, but you, know, you can read it again for yourself. It's, um, it's quite graphic and visceral. All right, um, we've got a few minutes, so let's go ahead on. Uh, verse 34, Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gilbeah of Saul. So this is, um, this is again one of these understated lines in Scripture. 
this is, this is the last time that um, Saul and Samuel meet. This is the last time they're ever face to face. And this is how it ends. I mean, Samuel basically, with Saul present, this is what you should have done, hacks this guy to pieces. And then, um, and then they go back to their hometowns. They depart and go their separate ways. Even though I think they're only like five miles away, like that's it. They, they never see or speak directly again see each other speak directly again. So, um, all right, uh, yeah, so Samuel went to Ramah, Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. You know, and there, I mean, there's the beautiful and prophetic heart, is even though Saul's so wicked and so deceiving and self-deceived, Samuel still grieves. And just what a beautiful picture Samuel here is, is of our Lord, both in terms of justice um, and violence, uh, you know, just violence, but then also uh, grief and, uh, you know, spiritual travail. So Samuel here, just such an icon and an image of our Lord Jesus. Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Okay, there's some really interesting things here with the language of regret. You may have picked up on that. Um, on the one hand, he regrets that he made Saul king. On the other hand, he's not going to renege. He does not regret. And then here he does regret. I mean, this treatment's all for another time. But this, is what, this is, probably just ties into this greater motif of the, of the mystery of how it is that, that God regrets, how it is that God repents. In one sense, he doesn't at all. He's absolute, he's transcendent, he's timeless, he knows how all of this is going to go. In another sense, he's very much imminent and, uh, and relates to us imminently in this life you know, as our God and as our Father and appears to change his mind. He has, he has mercy, relents, and repents on Nineveh, for example, classic example. And, um, so you know, this is just a fascinating topic and, and really one that's not... Um, not easy to systematically fetch out. I don't think that that's the point. I think the point is rather to, in some respects, to marvel at the mystery. In a, in a deeper respect, I, I think that this is the point. The point is, don't treat God like a system. Don't treat God the way Saul did. Um, don't treat God as, well, I can disobey him because with him there's forgiveness. All I have to do is offer the right sacrifice. All I have to do is claim my baptism. That is not how God wants to relate to us. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, not any time. God wants truth and sincerity. He wants an honest confession of your sins, and He will grant an honest and full absolution. He wants renewal in the inner man. He wants battle between the spirit and the flesh in us. Um, he wants us to stand up for what's right and true. Uh, he wants us to not pay lip service to Him. Um, but, to, but to be single-minded toward him and, and toward his work. and That's what we aspire to. When we fail to live up to it, we confess wholeheartedly. We, we believe his absolution, um, won by the blood of Jesus on the cross, and we rise again to be faithful children. So that's, um, you know, that's the paradigm. Saul's the false saint. He's the false saint, and he's, he's what we don't want to be. Samuel's the true saint here. All right, um, into chapter 16, and we move into a figure likely much more familiar to you than either uh, Saul or Samuel, and that is David. Chapter 16, verse 1. 
the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? You kind of got to love because the Lord, you know, it's like, fine, you're grieving, I got it. But then, hey, the grieving's up. I've rejected him. We need to move on. So he says, fill your horn with oil and go. Now, of course, that's for the anointing. That's precisely how Saul himself was anointed. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, of course, this is a little town of Bethlehem. This is where our Lord Jesus is born. And so we want to make that connection. I mean, Jesse and, as we'll see, uh, his sons, eight of them, David the youngest, they all live in Bethlehem. It's a little town of Bethlehem. That's the city of David. Um, and um, this is where uh, Mary and Joseph returned because Joseph is in the house and line of David, the house and line of Jesse. So they return here for the census. That's where our Lord Jesus is born, David's son, but also David's Lord. All right. So uh, the Lord says very plainly, um, go to uh, grab your horn with oil, go to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Ah, there's the line I mentioned earlier. Pardon me here, too much talking has my throat scratchy. So yeah, here's, this gives us a glimpse into how this actually would have looked, present tense. Uh, Samuel is fearful for his life. He doesn't trust Saul at all. Saul certainly has the power and Saul certainly has the temperament uh, to just off him. How can I go? If Saul hears it, if he hears of my, you know, my traveling, he will kill me. It's not like you just you know, quietly jump in a car at 1 a.m. and zip over to the town. I mean, as you're going, everybody sees you going. Word passes, especially if you're a person of the, of the stature and prominence of Samuel. Where Samuel's going, everybody hears of it. So how can I go, Lord? If Saul hears, he's going to kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So in other words, here's the, you're going to go make a sacrifice at Bethlehem. Um, and as far as the public is concerned, as far as Saul's concerned, that's your purpose. Verse 3, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came out to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Why trembling? Because they, like all of Israel, had been guilty in disobeying the Lord. They, like all of Israel, had followed Saul. They, like all of Israel, had heard of Saul's rebuke and had heard how uh, Samuel himself hacked to pieces Agog, king of the Amalekites. So when, he's, <laughs> when he comes, it carries some gravitas. Uh, the elders immediately see him coming. They're trembling. Do you come peaceably? And he, Samuel, said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. So he invites all the elders of Bethlehem to come. Consecrate, again, means many and various things, but usually ceremonial washing, you know, prepare yourself for the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. 
The Study Bible points out that Jesse isn't here explicitly included amongst the elders. It's likely that Jesse wasn't really a, a man of much account, even in Bethlehem. And so uh, there, there's a continuation of this motif that, that Jesse isn't amongst the elders. He's one of the more lowly men in the city, and look and see how he is, how he is elevated. And of course, we're going to see that in spades then with, with David, the, the youngest and least of the brothers, being elevated to the utmost. Uh, so th that theme continues just very heavily in this section. So Samuel consecrates Jesse and his sons and invites them to the sacrifice as well. Verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Um, now, later on we learn that uh, Eliab is uh, the oldest. So we know that for a fact, followed by the second and the third oldest. Um, and we also, the chronology is a, little, is a little quirky in chapters 16 and 17, as we'll see. Um, so we'll talk about that as we progress on. But um, be that as it may, it's likely that these first three are mentioned because they're of uh, military age. They're considered you know, absolutely full-grown. They can go out and fight for Israel. They can certainly be uh, the king, the next king. So... Be that as it may, Samuel is sitting there. Jesse brings his sons one by one. He looks on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. That means Samuel thought, hey, this is the guy. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Now, this, this of course is, you know, Saul looked the part, but absolutely was not the part. Um, Eliab looks the part. The Lord says, no, he's not the part. I've rejected him. He's not the guy. And then he continues. The Lord says this to Samuel. He continues, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. All right, so the heart of Eliab is not right for the kingship. Then Jesse called Abinadab. Again, we later find out that he's the, the second oldest. And made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. Here's the third. And again, these are the three men of fighting age. So that's why we end here, you know, in the narrative. And he, Samuel, said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. So only the three first are mentioned, and then the other four come. That's seven sons. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. Um, this was not a great job, keeping the sheep at this time period. I mean, as in, I think, probably most time periods, but maybe specifically here, this isn't really a, pro this isn't really a profession. This is just given to the, to, to the member of the family who has the, who's the lowest in the pecking order. You know? it's, like, it's like when you're, when you're a boy and you grow out of uh, keeping the sheep and it goes on to your younger brother, you couldn't be happier. And so, so David's got the... He's the low man on the totem pole, and he's got the bad job here. He's out keeping the sheep. And Samuel, I mean, look, I mean, even in the eyes of Jesse, David's of so, so little account and so unlikely to be chosen that he's not even included in the presentation. 
You know, Samuel has to specifically ask, are all your sons here? Oh yeah, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Uh, much is made of this word ruddy, which, which has a literal interpretation of reddish, and it's why in many, uh, many a child's Bible, I've got two young children and virtually all of their Bibles it's this way, David is depicted as red-haired, um, as kind of this redhead amongst all the rest of the family. It doesn't necessarily mean that. I mean, at least not here. That's not what ruddy necessarily means. Ruddy can simply mean healthy, full of life, uh, the way, you know, you're, you're, if your cheeks are pale, uh, you look deathly, you look sickly. If your cheeks have color, you look ruddy, healthy. And that seems to be more apt with the description given anyway. It doesn't mention any other specific physical features. Rather, generally, it says he was ruddy, he had beautiful eyes, and was handsome. And beautiful eyes, again, there really refers more to like the clarity and the, uh, and the appearance and the the presentation as opposed to, the, I think, the way we would think of beautiful eyes as, um, oh gosh, we, well, it's just frankly, in our culture, we would tend to say that only women have beautiful eyes. Um, that's, so we have, to, we have to shake a little free from our cultural perceptions. And um, remember, uh, remember, Leah is described as weak in the eyes. Uh, what does that actually mean? Um, it has more to do with the, with the countenance and the, and the soul coming through the flesh, if you will. I think that that actually gets us closer to the sense of having beautiful eyes. Well, he's ruddy, he's full of life, he has beautiful eyes, um, you know, his eyes are shining within him. I, I think that that's even how Jonathan might be described after he eats the honey. Well, I could be wrong on that. And he's described on hand, as handsome. So uh, this is our description of David. Whether or not he had red hair, at least here I would argue, it isn't particularly clear. We've been introduced to David. We're a couple minutes over time. On that, we're going to have to end with our cliffhanger of getting to know David and getting to know the events of his life or reacquainted with them. Until next week, the Lord be with you.